So you guys are recording it in, through this this yes. uh, thing, right? I don't have. If, yeah. Do you want me to record mine too? If you, you want to, you can. Yeah, it's not necessary. Some, I'm recording it. myself, so sometimes in, sometimes the guest wants to. It's it's really your choice. It doesn't. I really don't want the guests to record themselves. I'm very upset. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just uh, moved into a a new studio, so I was curious to see how it sounds and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Room tone stuff, so yeah. I can start. Uh, look, look, um, we're we're sorry, mom and dad are fighting. You, you, you can just do do what you feel like doing. <laughs> I, 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 you, what? We're not fighting. Everything's okay. <laughs> okay. Isn't it? Yeah. I'm gonna go uh, drink, smoke, and watch a movie. Okay. <sighs> All right. So this episode is. Uh, oh, 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 hello, and welcome to Shoots a Piano Player French New Wave Podcast. This episode is on 400 blows because we're at the end of the season i like to save some of the the bigger more famous ones for the end and well it's finally time for 400 blows and uh uh hey, troll you're here too right <clears throat> as usual okay and we got two get one returning guest from the season i don't think the other guest has been on the season yet but, uh, I don't think so. Yeah, so uh, we have uh, Patrick uh, R- uh, Ripple and mm-hmm. uh, Dave Stonerob. Yep, that's me. As far as off, uh, well, thank you for coming on. And why did you guys want to talk about this movie? Um, I, I mean, I can speak for myself. Like, for me, French New Wave is, it's not necessarily a, a topic of great passion for me. There's movies that I'm, I really love. And then there's, you know, a lot of, uh, work. I just really don't care about at all. It's very hit or miss, but, um, this for me is sort of one of my all time favorite films, less for any historical value of, you know, how it changed cinema or how influential it is, or, you know, how it, uh, alters the form or whatever. And just because it, it's an extremely nostalgic movie for me. Uh, I didn't. I didn't grow up on the streets of Paris. I grew up in the suburbs of Houston. But um, I was just a rotten kid, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was just. Uh, I just had all kinds of uh, mental illnesses and stuff. And like when I think about my childhood, most of my memories are me uh, getting kicked out of class, me committing petty crimes, and me lying in bed hearing my parents have arguments about me. <laughs> so there's something there's something about this movie that is like very comfortable and familiar and, and even like just comfy, which is weird because it's, it's absolutely heartbreakingly sad. But uh, for me, this is a very personal uh, movie. And I just think Antoine Daniel in this film uh, is just such an unbelievably captivating presence and uh, just one of the most singularly great uh, representations of a certain kind of youthful energy uh, that I've ever seen in a movie or, you know, in, in any medium really. Um, So I, I just, I just love the hell out of this movie. I, I want it's, you know, it's, it's definitely for some people I would probably say, yeah, it's, probably like vegetables like well you got to see 400 blows it's foundational or whatever but for me like i put this on for fun i, I just enjoy the hell out of it okay when you say they're french new wave you don't care about are you talking yeah. about godard i am talking about godard um okay. I, but also like uh with Truffaut, like i think jules and jim is like one of the most boring movies i've ever seen in my life um <laughs> so 
you know, it's it's hit or miss. Uh, you know, uh, I love uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour by Alain Rene, but uh, Last Year in Marion Bad is uh, just so obtuse and irritating to me, and I don't care for it at all. So you it really, and then there are movies that I think are just okay that other people see as masterpieces, like uh, with uh, Cleo from Five to Seven. Hmm. Um, I think like that's a movie. I'm like, yeah, I enjoyed that fine, but I just I don't. It's not, I have no passion for it, so um, yeah, I'm just I'm just all over the place when it comes to French New Wave. Well, that's fair. We are, I won't say we're anti Godard, but we're kind of like, yeah, he's he's important, but whatever. Hmm. Yeah, obviously important to the movement. Uh, I don't think we've watched one movie that either of us thought was amazing. You know, the I, I have a Godard that I like. That Spencer does not like for sure, but that's that's about it. I have one I like. Oh yeah, what was that? Uh, it's the French title. It's, uh, My life to live. Oh okay, so there are two that we like, or yeah. that I like. <laughs> Spencer likes one. I have the one that I like. I like uh-huh. uh, masculine uh, and feminine. I agree. Uh-huh. I like masculine feminine. Or... Right, I also like I... Man of Outsiders too. But... Oh, apparently Godard is was mad that Tarantino named his production company after that. Oh, sure. Yeah. That was without his blessing? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, Godard quoted, uh, like the quote is like, he named his production company after my worst movie. <laughs> well. <laughs> Which I, I haven't artists seen. Artists are their own worst yeah. critic, you know. <laughs> I think it would be really weird if Quentin Tarantino's production company was a woman's a woman. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily a tribute to the best film. It's just, it says something about how he thinks of the company. They stand apart. It's a band apart, you know, so yeah. whatever. No, yeah, the, Godard has more than enough salt to go around. So, <laughs> of course, some is going to head in Tarantino's direction as well. Yeah. Uh, Dave, uh, why did you want to talk about uh, 400 Blows? Well, it was uh, pretty influential for me in my early years of uh, cinema, at least when I became an adult, you know, I was raised on classic movies. My parents were at least really great about giving me um, somewhat of a informal uh, education when it came to the classics. But when I got to uh, watching films on my own and moving to New York City when I turned 18 and finally just watching films, like the first time I saw this film was at the Angelica for a a French New Wave uh, festival. So, I, and I was like, what's this? Um, French movies for me were like Gigi or, <laughs> you know, An American in Paris, uh, Gene Kelly <laughs> movie. So seeing this for the first time was, you know, not to, to have a really bad pun here, but blown away. Um, just uh, huh. um, how simple the story was, how, uh, how emotional I got during it. I think in similar echoes from what Patrick said, definitely found a connection with my rambunctious childlike self. Not exactly saw jail time, but uh, having moved around so much as a kid, being a military brat, uh, definitely, I mean, I ran away a few times, so totally connected with that. I was the one getting in trouble in school, always with my, you know, that same kind of personality. So seeing this kid, I was like, wow, Oh, that's me in 1959, I guess. You know, I just really connected with the the main performance, and I had never seen a child actor perform 
so so uh, so well um i was living in new york to study acting so it was also like to watch these films too is also to see what are also considered some of the great you know actors throughout you know throughout the you know, history of cinema but uh but i was totally blown away by by the the just the overall acting performances in this movie and then when i did more research and i found out that oh my god this was an autobiographical account i was like and it was the first film of of an of an artist i was like wow how how like i I, it inspired me to be like how could i be how could i have been you know this honest at this age at this raw you know level um putting out something like this that was so true to your own self but also it doesn't feel it doesn't feel pretentious in any way or at least it's not a it's not a it's not a fantasy it is i guess it is a fantasy but it's not a it's not an over glorified it doesn't glorify anything it's uh, it's just raw and honest and i was just shocked that an artist could do that in their first time out you know cuz it seems like so many other filmmakers first time out is very indulgent and they want to you know do all the cool things you know but but and Truffaut did that but it was such a subdued you know way of going about telling a story i was like i was just completely blown away and you know, having grown up with Spielberg and you know another shit like that, but um, it was uh, it was just jarring to see something just kind of unfold, and not so much as a uh, the like there was it wasn't all about the plot. It was just about character, you know, and that was just really influential for me. So it was I fell in love with French New Wave and haven't looked back. Hmm. All right, um, so J Dog. Uh, you're kind of particular with trial performances. Uh, what do you think of this movie? Uh, this is the movie that I also related the most to. I was I wasn't a bad kid, so to speak. Uh, most of my actions are true. Uh, you know, negative actions came from my undiagnosed ADHD stuff. So, I mean, there. At the beginning of the movie, there's a part where uh, I don't remember what exactly he's. Oh, I think he's he's putting um, wood into their little mm-hmm. stove for heating the house, and he uh, after he's done, he turns around. You know, his hands are filthy, and he just wipes them on the curtain. <laughs> I love that. My yeah. my immediate reaction was like, "What the heck, God, you stupid kid!" And then I was like. Oh, that's totally something I did, probably. <laughs> like very specifically, like I don't know, and, and I wouldn't have thought anything was wrong with it either. Just like, well, I had to clean my hands. Might as well use the curtains. So, like, I, I, the the ones that I have, the ones that I have the problem with that we have been seeing, you know, in our French movies, and I don't think we've done a an Italian movie that's like falling around a coming of age style is they they get so mixed up in like sexuality like Mm -hmm. like all these children oh don't you remember being horny all the time when you were 10 like no (laughs) (laughs) as you know in the beginning when they're passing around that like looks like a calendar picture of that woman like yes i i definitely saw pictures of attractive women and i realized that they were attractive when i was a you know, elementary school kid, but the, like I had no concept of like let's make out, let's let's have sex. You know, uh, I I thought if I got a girlfriend, we could probably hold hands. I'm not even joking. You know, yeah. 
No, but you're probably following just the example of behavior you've uh, you were observing from either siblings or older kids or your you know father figure or whatever. You know, that's usually what it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I liked it, and I think all the kids were good. Like uh, the performances felt honest. That's all I could say about that. Yeah, I, this is. Uh, besides Murmur of the Heart, this is the one I really connected with a whole lot too. Uh, I wasn't that kid, but I had friends who were that kid. And uh, yeah, just like so much of this was like, oh yeah, I I even remember this being like being friends with this person, and and also my sister ran away from home uh, a few times. Her teen years were uh, not fun to be well, were not fun to be around for. And like and some of the stuff was like direct, like oh my sister was doing this shit too. Except, uh, uh, he didn't have a parent who, uh, who was very quick. Well, I mean, his mom was quick to anger, but like he didn't have a mom who was like kind of scary to be around when she's angry. So I was watching this. Was like, oh, this mom's kind of tame <laughs> when when dealing with her her troubles in child. I grew she, up with. She's just incompetent and doesn't care. What a what a what a great what a refreshing turn of, of a change or of pace. Or she just wants him to like her because she only makes like a change, you know. Because she's oh, I just want him to you know like go. once she hears from you know her husband like oh he thinks you're a bitch and she's like oh well I don't want that so <laughs> let me be nice to him I guess. <laughs> you know? I've I've tried nothing and I have no ideas. I feel like th- I feel like the relationship I have watched this and I it, or when I the first couple times I watched it I definitely thought of his mother as being like oh you know she's she's trying her best or whatever and then I I I have come to believe that she really does not care about him at all and the only time she ever uh, it sort of reaches affection towards him is because she is having an affair and he knows and she needs to stay and he is sort of a little bit wild and it's like well who knows what he's going to reveal to his dad when he gets mad or whatever so I gotta stay on his good side like I see it as totally self-serving well he did mention that uh, she had told him at one time that she was originally planning to abort him right um, as well like that's a fucking horrible thing to say to a child I I think the most the most brutal scene in this movie is the last scene between her and him where she is just clearly like, my life is demonstrably better now that you aren't here. So I am like, whatever, like, go ahead, stay and stay here. Um, I, I, I don't think she uh, really has any strong feelings about him one way or another. Yeah, uh, This is my first time seeing it. And I did not expect the abortion thing to even come up. And just like watching something like this and then looking at Hollywood at the time, it's like, Hollywood, like, they could hint at abortion at this point. I think there are a few movies by this point that kind of would talk around it, but having this be so direct, like, she wanted an abortion was, even though it's uh, over six, 60 years later, it still was like, holy shit. I, that, that really does hit hard. You had the same... I mean, we had a similar discussion when we were doing the... <clears throat> sorry, hold on a second. When we were doing the Japanese movie mm-hmm. uh, series, um, it was... There's an Ozu movie with an abortion in it. Well, uh, I'm thinking of the one that's like... 
black something streets streets of not not streets of shame right um black river black river thank you black river yes there's a scene where you know that guy's a total asshole to his girlfriend she she's not one like the main character it's we're following around the guy and then she just kind of flippantly mentions you know having an abortion there's no reaction just it's just a normal thing and then you look it up and it's like well yeah in japan you've always been able to do that and I remember at the time we were like, this, this is insane. If you put that in a U.S. movie from the 50s, you know, they riot and burn down the theater. And yeah. now if you put it in a movie, they'll riot and burn down the theater. <laughs> yeah. Although you have, like, fast, fast Times. Uh, yeah, in Utah. But uh, Fast Times, Richmond High, there's an abortion subplot that's treated pretty, like, pretty cat. Like, not, not real. It's like, it's not like the most traumatic thing was Tria is like yeah this happens in real life although like that, that's like that's kind of like a one in a one in a thousand like chance though for that to happen in a Hollywood movie but um where am I going with this abortion yay <laughs> yeah, that's this, a conversation starter yeah but like this having that show up in a movie by a bunch of dudes <laughs> was, I paid for one I'm just kidding but just like having that it's in the 50s movie just is still shocking to me kind of just still used to like the standard Hollywood uh, stuff you know but um, yeah just uh, so is there anything for for uh, that doesn't work for any of you in this movie is there any, any like uh, noticeable like any, any negatives that really stick out to you guys Hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. That that's kind of uh, astonishing. Feel hard pressed, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, no, it's <laughs> nothing of note, no. Okay, yeah. It, yeah, I, I really don't have anything either. <laughs> I think this is like the first time <laughs> I, I like this like this. Oh, well, maybe maybe there was something. What was uh, what was that something with a watch? If someone puts a watch, was one of the teachers or or something? They put a watch on a counter, and I was like, oh, he, he really wanted to steal that watch too, didn't he? And I was like, oh, that actor didn't go with his didn't go with his gut. He should have stole it. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. What, <laughs> that's that's but that's like when he's in prison. That's when he's at whatever juvie or whatever oh, the yeah, that's right. equivalent that's like is. Observation. What do they call it? The observation center. <laughs> that's creepier. <laughs> the sound. There, that's basically that's bait. Is what that is. <laughs> that watch gets put there because they're trying to catch a kid, um, so that they can punish him for it. Like that's, right. that's how I feel about that. Whenever I see that, I'm like, you don't Did put that watch, watch down like that. I don't yeah, yeah no, he walked away, but he knew exactly where his watch was, and he knew who was around. Like, I, that to me is bait. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes he can do incredibly intelligent things. You know, like uh, the whole Balzac situation. Mm-hmm. Like, the teacher is too angry at this plagiarism to realize that you know he memorized part of the book, basically. And in, in enough that the teacher is like, I know exactly what this is, and you suck. <laughs> and then he'll do, you know, the the things that kids do, think they can get away with something, not realizing that, like, like his mom says, like, we were all kids ourselves. You guys forget that. 
like that's yeah. how I know your tricks. <laughs> I love that in particular because a someone who is absolutely as cinema crazy as Francois Truffaut, um, like everything you know this is even even an autobiograph like especially his later work but even an autobiographical film like this it is so inspired by so many other films that he has seen and he has sort of digested and and the idea of well that's that's what creation is like at first you start ripping people off and then eventually you rip people off in a way that becomes your voice and it i love the idea that uh there's this alternate path that you see where um, instead of being uh, just so dismissed, uh, the teacher's like, I, look, I can't give you a good grade for this because this is plagiarism, but like, I at least know that you read the thing and understood why it works, and here's a way to transfer. Like, the right teacher who isn't, but of course, like every French and British film from this era, the teachers are just these like absolute raving assholes. It's so funny. But um, they're, not, they're not even educational centers, they're just prisons for. Yeah. And and it's yeah. and and the way that they lear, are learning French is that they are like okay like I'm gonna take a poem and I'm going to destroy this poem by reading it line by line and having you copy it line by line thus destroying any kind of melody or like any meaning or any beauty that this poem once had is now done because what you have to do is recite back to me what I just told you and then when he takes something and he recites it back it's like no 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 not like that fuck you <laughs> yeah, like, that's why I connect with this character so much too because it's like I was the same way and all my teachers needed to do was just like connect with me in some sort of creative way like they just needed to you know like oh I'm I have maybe have a unique way of learning Perhaps you think outside the box, damn it. You know, like, you know, just give me give me something to work with as opposed to like, no, you have to do it like this. It's, you know, it's wrote like this, written like this, boom. You know, just repeat after me, you know, in that mechanical sort of way. And I had this the same issues. That's why I lashed out and was the class clown and did a lot of the antics. Like, like there's so many of the little antics that I connected with, you know, early on, especially in that first initial scene of like writing on the walls. Like I got in trouble for writing on the walls. Yeah, oh yeah, me well. too. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get caught. Oh, very good. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then there's those kids like Joel. <laughs> Just didn't yep. get caught. And, like, um, that, that, that was the thing too. That first moment where he gets caught, like he's the one who gets caught, even though every single kid is looking at the calendar. Right. It's whoever, like it's like Duck Duck Goose. You know, it's like ah. Oh. Well, that's a very <laughs> that's a very specific storytelling tactic, which is, and then you know, there's there's very little uh, in common between this film and like the films of Alfred Hitchcock. But obviously, Truffaut being a massive Hitchcock fan, like something that you can learn from how Hitchcock tells stories is if someone is wrongfully accused for something, if someone. Uh, if the world seems against someone unfairly, then the audience is going to be on their side and want to see them victorious. And the very first thing that happens to the main character in this movie is that he gets called out for something he didn't do. Exactly. Um, yeah. And the whole movie is the the all of the emotional depth is with the children. All of the adults are petty and and just shallow and selfish, and none of them care about the uh, uh, other people and none of them are reasonable or take things in proportion they all uh just blow like he gets you know he gets busted at the end because he's returning a typewriter um but it's just we caught you holding the typewriter and you're not supposed to be here so we're going to send you to a prison camp like it's so unreasonable and it's just 
it is a world in which at best the adults are incompetent like that gym teacher who loses his entire class <laughs> um, but like but at worst they are these like sort of uh, petty fascists of their own little realm where uh, like the teacher um, and they have to they have to exert their power over others because that's the only thing that makes them feel good and uh, it's you know it's not common for a movie of this era to be so solely on the side of the kids. Um, uh, I, I did read an interview with Truffaut mm -hmm. where he said a, a big point of inspiration for him was the Rosalini film uh, Germany Year Zero, which is about a young boy sort of wandering through the wreckage of Germany immediately after World War II and uh, just no one in his family even really noticing he's alive because there's so many other catastrophes and tragedies going on and stuff. And he's just, the whole movie is sort of focused mostly on his emotional journey. Um, yeah, but yeah, I was thinking of that too. Is like how much of the post-World War II French culture, because like the, considering the way the French, you know, were involved with World War II, less much so like, fighting against the Nazis as opposed to a little bit of, you know, a little bit of collaboration, a little bit of resistance, you know, so like that generation definitely like had something to necessarily like account for. And is this, is this sort of a, I know it's not the focus of it, but yeah, if you, if, if, if that film inspired Truffaut, is this his, yeah, like Fran France year zero, like this is what, you know, all the adults from that era are, you know, idiots and we're the new generation yeah. and, you know, uh, we're trying to we're just trying to be honest and creative and, and different and new and break away from you know whatever you you know established as you know qu uh, status quo before you know I don't know I think that's exactly right because I think it's not even just in France if you look at the post-war cultures all over the world like um, post-war Japan there was uh, such a defeated sort of national attitude and there was the was Sun children or Sun tribe was the sort of name for the juvenile delinquent uh kids yeah, yeah, of the yeah. era yeah, that's um, there's a lot of the german new wave is sort of reacting to uh, uh like if you look at like fassbinder films like there's a lot of heavy skepticism towards the idea that germany is no longer a fascist country and that like all the people who were responsible for that for the horrific atrocities no longer are there and we can all just move on and let's not talk about it and like there's a lot of resentment and uh a lot of anger in the youth uh, whose parents sort of went through World War II, um, especially yeah. for those who were on the Axis side or who collaborated with the Axis side. So, yeah. I think I think of, that's uh, that's totally spot on. Yeah, a friend of the show, Chris Funderberg, described like fast murder movies as like, "Fuck, my dad was a Nazi." <laughs> yeah. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So and I this this movie is not expressly political in that way. It's autobiographical, but Truffaut wisely does not try to take on the massive additional burden of making it a period film during Nazi occupation, which they they, they wouldn't be able to do it anyway. They don't have the money. Like the whole reason it's shot in black and white is just financial reasons, and same with a lot of like the handheld camera and stuff. So that was probably never on the table. But I think also this movie benefits from not having that additional sort of heavy layer to it and it being contemporary. And uh, a movie that came just before that I always wondered, like if Truffaut was still alive, I'd ask him like how much did like rebel without a cause sort of like inspire mm -hmm. him. Cause that was four years earlier. 
Well, you know what's really funny is that uh, in this mo- throughout this movie, Antoine Daniel dresses exactly like. Um, uh, oh gosh, I can't believe James I'm Dean. blanking on his name. Not James Dean. Um, uh, Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront. Mm. He has right, the exact yeah. same like little checkered coat or whatever that Marlon Brando has, and I've never seen anyone bring it up, but I have to think it was intentional. Um, no, totally, yeah. Certainly, like as as just like a piece of costuming to sort of immediately place him as an outsider and you know someone with a chip on his shoulder. Like that's a that's a pretty heavy character to call upon. Yeah. Uh, going off of like the the like the low budget aspect, uh, did 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 any of you notice the cameos from other French New Wave people? Only Truffaut I, that the, yeah, and he just like walks across the <laughs> across the camera and lights a cigarette. That's you know the only one I knew. Uh, Godard has a voice cameo at uh-huh. some point. I think he might be the 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 random like VO sound effect you get when Antoine's looking in the mirror. After he after he wrote on the walls in school, because you get a, a really weird sound effect, uh, voice, uh, distortion thing. You see Jean Paul Bomondo, he's one of the guys at the printing press. Hmm. Uh, yeah, my understanding is uh, Godard also one of the voices at the printing press. Press. Oh, okay. Um, um, uh, Jean Claude Brille is the guy. Uh, when you see a woman looking for her dog. He's a guy with a woman, and he's a bunch of French New Wave stuff. He's friends with all those guys. Uh, Joel, he is the creep in Claire's knee, the guy who you know who wants to touch Claire's knee. Yes. <laughs> the philosopher king. Yes, he was like, I must touch this underage girl's knee for some reason. For her own good, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not she likes it, I experience it. <laughs> And I will make out with a 15-year-old girl for some reason. Yeah. That's oh, a, man. That's a weird part. I don't think the movie's bad. Just I don't, I don't get the, what the point of the movie is. Romer, uh, <laughs> Romer is an, a master of uh, sort of documenting all of the ways that men can be uh, sort of self-justifying shitheads. Um, but also, he might be a self-justifying shithead himself. So it might it might not necessarily be solely uh, critical, but it might be <laughs> indulgent as well. But either way, I, one of the things I love about his movies is that he really does get to the heart of just like, oh man, men could be like such passive-aggressive pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and Jean Monroe, Sean Monroe. Um, from Bride War Black is a woman who lost her dog. Oh. And she was briefly married to William Friedkin for a year. And uh, this was back in his like cocaine 70s era, so it I'm sure she left him. I thought the guy, that other guy in that, that scene, you know, who's like, go, 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 I've got it, I've got it, mm-hmm. the, the, the dog, you know, the, the yeah. old, uh, he looked so familiar too, but yeah. I don't, That's, I can't uh, place him. That's Jean-Claude Brille. He's he's in a whole bunch of stuff. He's on a bunch of Truffaut stuff. He's in a lot of uh, Claude, Gibra- Claude uh, Gibral movies. He just like okay. would show up with in in everyone's movies because he was yeah, like this their buddy. He looked so familiar. I was like, I, I thought he was in something Godard, but and then I I looked like well, I couldn't so find necessarily find his name in the credit. So oh, he's a woman is a woman. You said? Oh, yes. okay. 
Okay, cool. That's probably where I know him from. I think he's one of the guys in Bride Were Black, too. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, probably, because those guys were all... And the Antoine actor is also in Bride Were Black. He's... I think he might be the dad who gets suffocated in the in the pantry or whatever. He's in La Ronde also. Yeah. He's in and and uh he's also in Porchile. He's the pa- he's a super passive son who can't decide what he wants to do with his life. <laughs> Has a Hitler dad. And there there's one other cameo that you haven't mentioned. I I didn't pick any of these out watching mm-hmm. them. I just don't have that kind of eye, but I did look this up and I found him. Uh, Jacques Demy is one of the cops at the end. Really? Yeah, who he huh. transfers him to the part where he's like signing the confession and then he gets transferred over to the cage. Jacques Demy is like retrieves him from that office. <laughs> and nice. uh, yeah. I'm sure Agnes Varda could have been in this movie, but also she was like really tiny, so maybe she could have been one of the kids who showed up yeah, at some she point. Was, she was sitting in the classroom, I was going to say. <laughs> A little known fact about the 400 Blows is Agnes Varda is in every scene hiding behind <laughs> a, a pebble. A battle of lamb. Yeah, exactly. She's inside that weird stuffed horse in the one kid's house. <laughs> it's a nightmare room full of cats. Yeah, you gotta smell one. I love that scene so much because oh, it man. really is wild the first time you go over to a friend's house who is like, maybe they're rich or maybe they're eccentric or whatever, but like, you have no concept of how other human beings live when you're a child. And the first time you go over to someone else's house and they're just like their entire vibe of their family is wildly different from yours. It is such a mind blowing experience. <laughs> and the way that Truffaut shoots it with these like crazy high angles. So you're just seeing like your, your eyeballs are just being assaulted by all of this weird clutter and these cats and that horse and like all these decorations. It's so overwhelming and I just I absolutely adore all the scenes in this apartment and it and you really see the contrast of like you know Antoine is poor they I don't they never really explicitly say it just like you you see his apartment where he lives then you see his friend's apartment and it's shot totally differently you see there's so much more space and it's like so much more everything and and it's just this very very like direct simple visual cue of like uh, of like class difference without really without being like uh too too extreme with like trying to be, being too over being overhead with it but yeah like his aunt had money right like that was part of the part yeah. of the story right or at least like his confession at the end where i mean we get so much I, that's another reason why i love this movie is like we get all the exposition at the end <laughs> when he's like <laughs> talking to this you know the psychiatrist or whatever at the observation center and we get like all this like oh this is all the information we Oh, in a traditional way, this would have been before, <laughs> but uh, or, or it unfolded in the first half of the movie, and he's just confessing all that. And we don't know if any of these stories are true. Of course, it's just from a child's point of view. But, uh, but yeah, the money he steals—that was a relative of his that wanted to give him the book, and then right that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think am I so. remembering right? I feel like that's his grandma is what or grandmother. Yeah, yeah. something like that. But I guess she had money, but like. Every older person is insane in this movie. They live alone and they're insane. Mm-hmm. Um, his friends, you know, grandfather or father alone. You never see the, you know, the woman and the, the grandmother. You never, you know, his grandfather's dead. But, um, yeah, like they're eccentric and have their own like sort of hoarding. 
weirdness. <laughs> yeah, but they're kid, but they're kids, so they don't ask questions. Like you just there's right. this there's this crazy story that is just sort of simmering in the background that is not explored because children are don't think to ask like what the hell is the deal with your parents? They're just like, oh, cool, you know how to steal money from them. Awesome, let's go to the movies. Yeah. I did that, though, too. I knew where exactly all my parents' little money-hiding spots were. Oh, hell yeah. I did that with a friend's house. Uh, his My friend's younger brother, uh, he, only a year younger, in high school, I don't, he had always had like a, a giant jar full of quarters, and I'd always steal like maybe $3 worth of quarters every time I was over at their house. That's up. That's smart. Yeah, you steal just enough not to get noticed. Yeah. It's a good friend right there. Uh, it was his brother, and I don't think uh, he ever found out. Okay. At least they never mentioned it to me. <laughs> I know exactly how many quarters are in that. That's the thing about family, though, right? Like, we steal from each other, and no one calls anybody on their shit. I was just, when that when that, when that that scene happened in this, I was like, that reminds me of that scene in Sideways where Paul Giamatti's character shows up, you know, at the mom's and like knows exactly where the mom's stash is and takes it and they don't say anything to each other. You know, it's just one of those understood things like we're not going to express our emotions in any sort of verbal or physical way. We're just going to do these things to each other and not talk about them. And there's so many echoes of that in this, like the... You, you know, the stepdad doesn't talk to the wife, you know, the wife doesn't talk to the stepdad. They, they channel all their like little passive aggressive little things through the child and the child learns that that's the way humans communicate and does it to other people. It's this vicious sort of circle about it. Like, I, I, I mean, but it's so true. Like we all do that. Like it, all families are fucked up like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the friend character reminds me of a friend I had growing up who, I had I had a culture shock thing of going to his house for the first time, and like I, I grew up Catholic. He went to Catholic school, but they are Lutheran, and so like they were the like they are the one weird Protestant family who who was going there, and uh, like they didn't believe in Halloween, which was like the big thing I couldn't comprehend. Uh, my friend was okay with it, but the parents were like, "No, that's Satan's birthday. We don't celebrate Halloween here." <laughs> I've never heard Satan's birthday. That's great. I don't know if that's a Lutheran thing or just a them thing, but they were very intense and serious about. Hey, we who's don't Satan's do mom? <laughs> <laughs> if Satan was birthed, like let's let's unpack this a bit. Right. Well, he was born, but he was an angel. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a bit. Um, people's conception of. Uh, Let's get into this instead of the movie. Yeah, the people's conception of like the devil, <laughs> Satan, and hell is, is so weirdly varied. Like it, you, you wouldn't know Wait, about Joel, it you grew unless Protestant. somebody told you about it. Uh, Joel, you you, right? you were Protestant. Is that a Protestant thing? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not. I didn't learn Satan was anything except for you know in from what I remember there wasn't much talk. First of all, of like satan and the evil and the things like that it was more because it was uh united methodist it was more on the forgiving side i feel like for some reason uh yeah so we didn't really talk about that but like but my perception from the bible was like this guy is kind of like our version of loki for the marvel universe like he's just kind of a trickster asshole but not really 
I mean, he still has to follow God's rules. I don't know. It's very silly. I was raised to believe that Satan is Paul Williams and he's going to steal your songs and (laughs) he's going to make them worse. And that's true. That's true. That is just true. I mean, you know, there's religion and there's fact and that part is fact. (laughs) Yes. So does that mean uh, Jessica Harper is a is a saint? Yeah. Or a. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My 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 confirmation name is Patrick <laughs> Jessica Harper Ripple. <laughs> I had a friend whose confirmation name was Constantine because the Keanu Reeves movie had just come out. Oh sure, sure, classic. What? Constantine was a pope, I believe. No, a Roman emperor. Yes, he was a pope. Yes. Well, yeah, Eastern was it Eastern Roman Empire? I can't Byzantine remember. Byzantine Empire. Yeah, I remember the like ruler. Yeah. I just remember the rules were like it can be a biblical name or it can be like a, a name of a saint. And I picked Tobias oh. because I love the Russian development. That's, that that is <laughs> that that is that is the uh, beautiful irony of confirmation is that it's like <laughs> this is where you are making the adult decision to be part of the church. And it's like, well, my parents are making me go here and I'm picking a name based on what pop culture thing I like. I don't (laughs) think this is working out the way you want. Yeah. Yeah, mine would have been Popeye. (laughs) (laughs) At that age, I'd be like, I love God. Can I talk about my, I don't want to say it's my favorite scene because there's like a lot of really great moments, but like, I feel like a scene that I don't see talked about in this movie that I find absolutely heartbreaking and beautiful um, is the uh, Punch and Judy puppet show scene where it's, it's just this, it's not explicitly stated. You don't get a line from the two kids like, oh, we're too old for this now. But it's so clear that you have like just this sea of children's faces and they're not actors. They are just like a bunch of kids who were told they were going to get to see a puppet show and they are so excited. There's their like mouths are just hanging open uh, from I think it's like Little Red Riding Hood versus the Big Bad Wolf, and they are having so much fun. And then it cuts to Antoine and his friend over on the wall, and they're like, "Well, uh, a typewriter we could probably get a lot. Like you know, that's that's portable. We could move that, and uh, you know, you can get some real nice cash for the typewriter." And they're like, "Totally, they're too old now." Like. They have aged out like they they or their innocence is lost. Yeah, their 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 innocence is totally lost. Their childhood is falling from them, whether or not they know it. And it's like such a beautiful point made so subtly um, and deftly. I just I absolutely love that scene. And I love I just love how much time Truffaut spends on those just goober (laughs) kids who are so excited about that puppet show. Uh, I, I love that scene so much. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great, important sort of juxtaposition of just where that those main characters that we're following came from. You yeah, know, like yeah. All, ki- all kids come from that innocent, like wide-eyed, you know, you know, not all kids, but I mean, you know what I mean. Like, there's the the, sim- the just the sim- symbolic, you know, of what yes. it was lost, you know, for these two. Like, yeah, they're they're past that just. Um, that that time period when suspension of disbelief is so easy and it's magical, you know, to just let yourself, mm-hmm. you know, go and have fun, you know, and enjoy this silly silly thing for you. Yeah, uh, like one little detail that I love is that you see them like this is like the montage thing towards the end, where, like they're just like being bad boys, stealing like, stealing stuff, and they steal a poster for Summer with Monica, the Ber- the Bergman film. 
which really sticks oh, out yeah, because yeah, yeah. if you know the history of that movie, that was like one of the first major movies with nudity in it. And so that's just like okay, like they, they like they are, uh, like definitely like preteen, like teen boys, if they're stealing a poster for for that movie. And then there's the nonsensical one where they steal a clock from a women's bathroom. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and like we only know that because like the, the clock goes off, I guess. You know, in their, that makes in their sense shirt. to me. And they're so worried about anybody knowing what the hell that's all about. It's like. And why is there one of those in the women's bathroom? <laughs> because we can take it and no one's going to be able to do anything about it. And doesn't that feel good to finally have some agency over our environment and like just take the thing that the kid, they don't think we're going to take? Oh, man. No, that's Absolutely. I know. I never stole anything of any value. I only stole petty shit. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was always my thing was like, you realize that they don't think I'm going to take this sign and hide it in my closet. But I totally took this construction <laughs> sign and hid it in my closet. That's something I, guess I, I was would a different like kid. Now. I started out with planning bank heists when I was 10. <laughs> as opposed to oh, yeah. Petty crime. <laughs> yeah, I feel like my theft now is much more practical. It's just sort of like, well, it's not stealing if it's from Whole Foods. Uh, <laughs> That's true. So I, I'm more in the, uh, I am going to take this produce and uh, not ring it up. Oh, come on. All theft is practical. Yeah, well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think about it as me fulfilling like a part of what's supposed to happen. Like if some company or you know you were talking about construction that's a good example like if they put out cones and for some reason nobody took them in at night i i might take one and you know it's just like well that's that's a consequence of you having done that well basically what i'm saying is i'm an asshole uh, well like the milk that's yeah that's right example he... of the milk yeah well that's extremely practical that's yeah that's no one, no one's gonna put him on trial for that. That's uh, Jean Valjean stealing a mouthful of bread. Right, but I mean, like, I mean, that's a perfect, that's a perfect scenario. Early in the morning, you're like, hey, you guys just leave it out here. There are plenty of times in my life where that has happened to me, and I did indulge in that little, quick little, yeah, put in my pocket. Yep. yep. Come up with a better system, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it feels good. It does. It does feel good to watch movies where people are not like mean spirited or vindictive. And there's nothing about Antoine like he gets mad at the kid who rats him out, and he gets his revenge on that kid. But like Antoine is not a vicious or mean spirited kid by any means. So it feels good to watch him break the rules, and because we know ultimately that none of these things. Are, would really hurt anybody. Even if that typewriter never came back, it's like, whatever, they'll get a new typewriter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's more yeah. larceny than theft. Right, exactly. Uh, Joel, uh, I forgot what episode you mentioned, but a recent French movie we covered, you said, it's missing pinball. And when I saw pinball, I was like, oh yeah, this is a, this is a French New Wave movie. They're playing pinball. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what it was either. But, uh, I mean, it's so prevalent in these movies we watch. It's like this... I mean, they're in cafes, they're in bars. Like, well, they're, they're forms of gambling. They were serious them. gambling operation hmm. machines at that yeah. time. That was the only, like... Yeah, that was the only way you could legally gamble, so to speak. It at was... least that's how they thought they... they, they, they sort of classified those kinds of things and, and started cracking down because it was like 
uh, well, you don't really have, you know, like they were money sucking sort of, you know, devices. And that's what, you know, the government would say is like, oh, these are gambling machines. Like, you know, you shouldn't, you should be regulated. This and that. But they were. I, I, yeah, I don't know how they, in France, if that was what was going on. I know that mm-hmm. was what it was like in, in the U.S. And in, like New York had a law mm-hmm. banning pinball uh, until like the early 2000s or something like that hey hmm. there's I, I, a uh, it finally there's a warner brothers gangster movie called bullets or ballots where part of the criminal uh sort of scheme is like now take a look at this we call it pinball look at these kids <laughs> oh. they think they're gonna win but it's all a scam and it's like they rub their little hands together <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really good blast from the past because i'm like i'm pretty sure that's the game where they make twilight zone quotes at you i don't <laughs> adam's family yeah adam's yeah. family star trek next generation terminator 2 the classics oh yeah yeah this might be a stretch but i can't help can't help but uh can't help but think of the simpsons when watching this movie in particular, Barton Millhouse. Oh yeah, and like and there's the part when they have like the the straws with like, and there's between spitballs. Like, oh, this is totally like a Barton Millhouse type of thing. <laughs> I'm guaranteed they've referenced the 400 blows probably a couple of times because they do that. Yeah. You know, they just suddenly insert a scene from a yeah. movie that The Simpsons are doing, and they don't call it out. It's just it's like, oh, I recognize that. Yeah, it's like when that's you a good feeling. Adult, it's when you come in adult and realize, oh, the Simpsons loves Susan Kane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so does America. Yeah. Yeah, there's a Nelson scene that's on a beach huh? that's totally the ending of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> of course, because it's Nelson, right? <laughs> he's the perfect, uh, he's the perfect <laughs> modern embodiment of this character. Yep. He points at the camera at, while he's at the beach, go, does his classic ha-ha, <laughs> freeze frames on him, we zoom in. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, one thing about this movie that I don't hear talked about is the music. And the mm. music was like, uh, of of all the movies we've talked about so far, this might be my favorite score. Because the, like, the music is so, like, it's, it, so it, it's so good. And it's like, it's so peppy and happy, contrasted with like, this reality of like his life kind of sucks because you know no one because adults won't listen to him and you know, like we like we discussed earlier like there's a there's a sadness to the movie but the music is really happy and, and I just love how it but it's like sometimes that contrast can be forced but here it feels very organic. Well, there's, it still feels like it's in a minor key, so it still yeah. has that like poppiness to it, but oh, it's so still so haunting there's a sadness to it and also it's really versatile so depending on how it's arranged depending on what tempo it's played at depending on what instruments are used in any given scene it can have a lot of different feelings like at the beginning of the movie during the opening credits it's this just like very beautiful uh sort of sparkling uh kind of music then you see the eiffel tower and you are sort of treated from this like backseat little kids view of the city, like looking up at all the buildings and stuff. And there is this sort of sense of joyous wonder um, and energy to it. And then by the end, when you get mostly like the guitar rendition and he's on the beach, it's like really sad. And it's just, it's, I think most of this movie is kind of scored with the same uh, main melody. Um, Yeah. Especially in that kaleidoscope where they're all spinning in the happy go pukey (laughs) 
machine, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I felt like the, the it was, yeah, it was still that same theme, but it blasted it in a carnival sort of, you know, sort of way. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I just had something that slipped my mind. I, if, if we're just to throwing out great French New Wave scores, like uh, obviously uh, Elevator to the Gallows is the first one that comes to my mind. Elevator to the Gallows? It's a Louis Malle film uh, that with a Miles Davis score that is just oh, an yeah. absolutely incredible. Yeah. Right. You, you, uh, you got Robot. collaborated with Louis Malle like a couple times, right? Or was that I the th- only time they collaborated together? I'm not sure. But I'm not sure. Well, John, all you have, but uh, Patrick, Dave, have either of you seen *Murmur of the Heart*, the Lee Mall film? Yeah, that's one of the ones I hate. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned earlier you love it. That's awesome. I'm, I'm very happy. But I just I found uh, that movie. I so I connect, I, I connect with it because uh, okay. uh, some other the, the the creepy priest thing reminded me of something. I wasn't molested. I want to clarify. But there yeah, was I was gonna a, say a creepy priest that I. Uh, was that was friendly with me when I was younger? Allegedly, allegedly, I want to clarify that. Allegedly, he was he was uh, he was friendly found, with you. It was found out he was he must he might have molested some kids. Jesus. Oh, okay. I just want to say allegedly. I don't. Okay. If we're talking about music and murmur of the heart, the only thing I think of is when he goes to the whorehouse, and it's this very emotionally complex, fraught kind of scene. Except the music that's playing in the whorehouse is the song that is sampled in Lou Bega's Mambo Number no. Five. I fucking so, knew it. <laughs> so I was right. It is, yes. <laughs> you were. So the whole scene, all I can think of is it's like, it's actually kind of like, oh, God, this is this is skeezy and weird and gross. And then I'm just like, little bit of Monica in my life. <laughs> but, uh, but like Murmur of Heart is like, what if the kid is rich and he fucks his mom? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope it was pitched that way. <laughs> Which, Dave, uh, uh, maybe as a spoiler for you if you, ha- if you haven't seen it, but it's kind of the same movie. Okay. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, say. like, the, the French teaching their children to have sex with prostitutes, that's even sort of hinted in this movie, remember? Oh, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. When, he, when he's talking about that one time, he, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's such a French cultural sort of fucking thing. It's so weird. It is so weird when it comes up in movies, and I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> that was just a there, it was institutional prostitution <laughs> in France, and it was sort of expected, <laughs> just yeah. to like, hey, you can't uh, if you're awkward and you don't know how to talk to the ladies, uh, I got one right here for you. <laughs> yeah, Japan had that during the occupation, but. Uh... Well, they had because American soldiers were so shitty to the women, they kind of had to do something. Uh, and then, cause I think it was like it was syphilis was spreading among the Americans a lot because they were assaulting the women. And then uh, M- MacArthur was like, no, 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 prostitution is a sin. And so he, he kind of ended the uh, the program that like helped deter American men from assaulting women. But, uh, so they probably uh, still had sex with the women, but... Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, no support yeah. about it. like how you should do that. Yeah, because MacArthur was a uh, basically a dictator in Japan for a brief time. Yeah, very very complex history. I, I, it's, uh, too much to get into, but uh, that's just one of my, one of my favorite like weird things that happened. That like he kind of <laughs> made things much worse when he could have just made things easier. America. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. No, no one ever talks about World War Two. 
what happened afterwards. <laughs> no one talks about a lot of the things that are complicated from our side, but you know, yeah. they just talk about the Marshall Plan, like, oh, isn't that great? We just rebuilt Europe, even though we destroyed every single little brick. That yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh, we're you know. so good. See, we, we we didn't have to do that. We could have just left it, you know, to fend for themselves. But we did the right thing, and we rebuilt it so we could exploit it. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure my grandfather, who uh, who was black, didn't get uh, the uh, uh, the uh, GI Bill. I, I'm pretty sure he didn't, given America at the time. <laughs> but uh, I I've no nothing to confirm this. But uh, uh, let's see what else is there. All right, uh, Do you think that the the kid in this movie got the GA bill? No, wait. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, because he's white. Duh. Oh, okay. Yeah, if he served, yeah, he got it. And he's white, so there's no complications. Just the, like yeah. in the same way that like you know Japanese Americans were put in internment camps, but German Americans weren't <laughs> during World War II. <laughs> it's it's interesting that the kid has this like fixation. I mean, he mentions it very early on, like, "Well, I'm gonna join the army after school or whatever." And, you know, I know, I know Traf- Truffaut himself was in the army, but, like, I, I wonder what that was even motivated by. Yeah, he's just just poor, poor. He's like, he's out. not going to college. Yeah, poor, yeah. I mean, it's the same way here in America. This yeah. is also, 59 is also, like, this is still where French are kind of imperialists, and they're, like, being in the army actually means going somewhere and doing things, and... Um, I don't know. There's, there's still, there's still that whole, uh, there's still that whole propagandistic idea of, uh, you know, France is, as a world power, um, even in 1959, a little bit. Um, so, yeah, but, but they were losing their power because like this is, I think this is like right when the African countries started going independent. Although they, they Algiers and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Although they kind yeah. of never left Africa. If you, if you look at, uh current news and military stuff uh was it uh no uh the yeah what was i can't remember this movie like i thought this would be homework like patrick you said i thought you said like some people think it's vegetables but like i thought this was going to be homework because i was putting it off for a long time and this watching is like no this is a masterpiece and a classic for a reason is like this isn't this isn't just like some boring French movie. This is legit one of the, like might be like one of the best French French movies of like of the decade. And I think um, I think when you when you talk about like Truffaut as a director in this film, um, when we talk about directors, often we are talking about what the camera is doing at any given point. But for me, the most remarkable thing Truffaut does here is in directing uh gosh i always forget his last name jean-pierre uh the uh, kid the actor who plays antoine daniel um Uh, which is yeah there we go so he he does he is improvising his dialogue he knows what he has to say it's it's he has a very under very strict uh sort of idea of you know, this is how you respond to this accusation or whatever. But he did not have to be word for word on the script. He could use his own words. Um, and Truffaut just found the right kid. There's, 
<laughs> it's it's so great if you if you go onto the special features of the Criterion, which are probably on Criterion Channel or even on YouTube at this point, um, and you look up uh, interviews uh, with Truffaut at this time, and then you look up the audition footage from this kid, they have the exact same mannerisms, very specifically. Um, when they get asked a question, their first instinct is to sort of like shudder and shrink a little bit and like sort of deflect like uh, like it, it almost feels like they both have this like lifetime of being accused of something uh, and, and needing to be on the defensive at all times. And whenever a reporter just asks Truffaut like, so in America, you know, how, how is the 400 Blows doing? Truffaut just has this little moment where he shakes his head and looks around. And he's like, well, you, yeah. And then and then he gets calms down and answers the question. But there's just this little like, what are you accusing me of? Um, <laughs> what are you trying to trick me? And um, and the kid has the exact same thing. And I think Truffaut just saw the kid, got the right kid and created the right environment for him to have this this totally unprofessional uh, actor to have this like insanely vivid real three-dimensional uh you know subtle life uh behind his eyes and um like to me uh the reason this movie is so great is because specifically because of Truffaut's instincts you know which you don't get from going to the movie theater four times uh, a day and you know and and seeing 20 movies a week and like you don't get that sort of intuition and ability to work with people and actors um and for such a young director to know instinctively to do this um it's it, it's to me is the most remarkable achievement that Truffaut pulls off being like you know i guess in my initial thoughts were just like how personal you know how personal a film for your first film and to also be honest with yourself and find that that actor like god you have to be so in tune with your emotional life and being so honest with yourself to actually find yourself in not an ideal sort of way yeah you know and like it, an and actual representation of yourself like in an actor like that's amazing and he, he made it when he was like 27 so if you think about it this is like this is him looking back at his life 12 years ago <laughs> he, had such, he had such a harder life younger so i mean like he had to deal with much more emotions than a lot of us had to right yeah. but it, but it, for him it was like recent history like it's not it's not an old man looking back right. at what it was like being a child uh it's it's someone who more or less still is that sort of rambunctious hellraiser uh you know that was his reputation in Cahir du cinema and you know he as a writer he uh, was notoriously difficult on films and like uh, he got banned from the Cannes Film Festival and then the next year uh, this played it <laughs> but but like he was he was like such a harsh critic that they literally banned he was the only critic in France banned from the Cannes Film Festival and so like uh, I think that is probably a big part of it is that this isn't hmm. fond memories of a bygone era this is still directing how immediate and fresh yeah yeah, yeah fresh absolutely food. yeah i love that the aren't all the students in that classroom the people who didn't get the part yeah yeah there's uh i, I i'm pretty sure that just all them are non-actors um but they, they were looking for that star so they 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 dug so deep in that audition process that they actually found a bunch of really just because like every single child actor in that that room too is also really good. Like I, you know, I could have seen them if they, you know, John Pierre didn't walk in the door, they would have cast one of them, right? Yeah, yeah, they might have been okay. 
you know that one kid who keeps the one kid who keeps tearing pieces of paper because he keeps ruining them with ink. Oh, it's I just, love that. It's like, that moment the ink the the children with the ink problem the mm-hmm. child yeah oh my god I love that it's like, so funny because 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 you just it's just one of those like great observation sort of things where if, like this is such a natural thing that's going on and all you want to do is just like reach through the screen and go like get stop that and he holds on to that i mean he just hangs there so long it's so it's so great but it, i i wonder if it was just an improvisation like or just like he had the cameras i, I mean i could imagine he'd have multiple cameras but i mean like they just do multiple well you know, takes and, and angles and just like used a bunch of footage later on i don't know i know Truffaut's co-writer uh actually did work as a teacher um um of of children and stuff and i think a lot of especially the classroom scenes trufo leaned on him to get the dialogue exactly right and to get the dynamic right and that seems like something that a teacher could have observed in his own classroom and then put into the movie yeah no that makes sense have have either you guys joel i'm pretty sure you have it uh i I might be wrong but uh, have either you two seen the uh the sequels i've seen all five yeah I saw the short film uh, that he made a long time ago, and I don't really remember much of it. This is a movie for me, like, and I, I could be totally off base. I've been wrong before, but like, this is a movie for me. I don't need to follow this character anymore. This, to me, is the most interesting point of this person's life. Um, and little clips I've seen of the movies elsewhere, it's like, I don't need to see Antoine Daniel navigating fidelity in a marriage like that to me is so much less interesting uh than uh what happens in this film okay joel have you seen any of the uh the follow-ups who me yeah oh i've seen um i've seen revenge of the fallen and last <laughs> night okay <laughs> okay I, I i understood um uh yeah so 400 blows uh it's available in a lot of places it's not, uh, you know, it, if you look for it, it will be there. Your library has HBO it. Max or HBO Max right now. Yeah, yeah this is a movie that is, is not in danger of going away anytime soon. But, uh, oh, I just remember, okay, I remember a thing. One of the crew members is Philippe de Broca. And Philippe de Broca what, became like an action director, and he directed uh, an, an, an upcoming episode, That Man from Rio the Belmondo uh kind of like James Bond movie and uh DeBroca was a, became like he was like a studio mainstream like uh action adventure guy and that man from Rio is not that long after this and um you see Belmondo do his own stunts except for one one part but like you see like the 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 lead do like crazy stunts where it's like uh where it's like uh like in Hollywood, you were not see, you were not seeing that at the time, but uh, yeah, that man from Rio was great, and it, it's crazy to see Philippe DeBroca's name in the credits. All right, uh, let's see. Yeah, okay. Joel, uh, do you have anything to say about that man from Rio? I think it's an amazing movie. Like it's it's definitely one of the favorite movies I've seen this year. Okay. Uh, I don't I don't really have it in relation to the film we're talking about. Okay. I'll, well, I saw that for this movie could have used some more, you know, crazy stuff. scenes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so this is 1959. I'll have the guests get the guests go first. 
Um, all right. So, what do you guys recommend from this year? Neither of us want to go first. Okay. <laughs> well, I just you know like I I want to go first. The job of the host to like you know. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Hiroshima <laughs> Monomore <laughs> is one of my favorite movies. It's next to this movie. It is my all-time favorite sort of French new wave film. Um, it is Alain René who did a lot of work in the documentary form and that serves him well here because it kind of opens with a mini uh, brief documentary about uh, Hiroshima and the uh, aftermath of that um, and that sort of leads into this story of a Japanese man and a French actress in Japan uh, who's on there on a shoot um, and their sort of brief romance um, necessarily um, sort of uh, doomed to be short-lived based on, um, you know, just the fact that she's going to go back to France at a certain point. And they both have traumas from the war, and they both are trying to sort of make sense of what happened to them in the war. Um, and the whole thing is this absolutely beautiful feeling of uh, sort of... It's very dreamy. It's very uh, strange. There is the sense of people sort of sleepwalking through their lines. Like I took French in high school and I'm a terrible French student and every French film I watch, I can't make out anything anyone is saying, but in Hiroshima Mon Amour, I can actually make out a surprising amount of the dialogue just by listening because the way they speak is so robotic. Um, and it's, and it's just this really fascinating, like when I think about French new wave as a movement, I tend to think about more movies like Hiroshima Mon Amour that are like breaking a lot of rules of cinema and rewriting like what a fiction film can be and sort of tackling big subjects um, with, uh, with uh, sort of all new approaches to, you know, blending fact and fiction and calling to attention the, the falseness uh, and form of film. And uh, it's probably not for everybody, but I, I just love that movie. I think it's uh, something that everyone should give a give a try. I've seen it three times. I think I like it. I'm not sure, but <laughs> there, there's something to that movie. All right, anything else? Uh, my turn, I guess. Yeah, or Patrick, I can have another one. It doesn't. Hound of the Baskervilles, Hammer. It's uh, <laughs> Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes. What more you need? <laughs> All right, Dave, go ahead. took mine. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say one, but now that we have talked about it, I was like, no, this makes more sense to to talk about from 1959, especially since Truffaut's relationship with uh, and love of Alfred Hitchcock is uh, North by Northwest. And considering that both of these movies start sort of the same way, where someone gets accused of being something that they're not or just wrongfully accused. And the uh, adventures follow, <laughs> but in very, very, very different ways. But uh, very taut, you know, thriller, you know, from from Hitchcock, probably, you know, definitely one of his most iconic, just because of the landmarks. You know, you got your, you know, your your Mount Rushmores and et cetera, and all the New York City locations, Grand Central Station, or it was at Penn Station, I think it was Penn Station, which is like, it's one of the rare films where you actually get to see the glory of Penn Station before they ripped it down, but uh, hmm. yeah, um, such, such a great, you know, such a great thriller, you know, with such a likable, sort of charming sort of character too, um, just thrown into very extreme sort of circumstances, for sure, 
Um, yeah, I mean, everyone thinks of the crop duster, you know, <laughs> the fucking airplane. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if anybody has not actually seen it, you know, it's worth your time. And, you know, it's I know for some people watching a Cary Grant performance is probably like watching an alien, you know, do <laughs> Shakespeare. But, um, um, you know, I, I still appreciate him. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, um, there you go. Northwest, okay. 1959. All right. Uh, can you hear my dog running in the background? Oh, yeah. Yes, don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, Mary just got home, and so... <laughs> no. Mary just got home, and the dog is very excited. <clears throat> okay, so for mine, I have a one movie, Rio Bravo. Uh, I like westerns. I like the... I, I like the 50s, 40s era Westerns when it was more like the movies are grandpa likes, that type of stuff. More so than like the uh, acid Western in the 60s, 70s. And Rio Bravo is like, just like to me, it's like a great hangout movie. The politics I disagree with. However, that doesn't mean I can't enjoy the movie. It's just everything works. And there's a moment in it that I think Sam Raimi stole for spider-man the first movie i did think uh, it was weird that peter parker sang my rifle my pony and me oh <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> but uh yeah rio bravo it rules and yeah, ricky nelson is the <laughs> the peter parker <laughs> i guess so <laughs> that's a, is that what you do you go into every movie who looking for who's the peter parker you like you get all anxious yeah. and then you're like oh no no it's ricky nelson okay cool it's i can ricky. relax and enjoy the movie now And the, and one book. The book is Things Fall Apart. It was first published the year before, but fuck it, who cares? I don't think we're covering 1958. Or we might be later, I'm not sure. But it's Chinua Chippe, one of my favorite writers. Uh, this book was one of the first in the big wave of uh, African novels coming out at the time. And it was one of the, f- the third one, I believe, published internationally and in English, and uh, if you haven't read it, uh, it's a short book, a lot of the books from that, like the big Nigerian like uh, writer writer movement are short, and it's, it's, it's important, but it's also just really fucking good. And that's it, J-Dog, you? I've literally, once again, I've literally talked about every single 1959 movie. I that, left one uh, out, because... There's an Ozu movie I, I purposely skipped. Oh, I can't. We, we talked about Everyone knows about Good Morning. I'm not going to Okay. get on that. Get the, get the hell out of here. <laughs> I love you. Uh-huh. <laughs> you also, you like eating stones. <laughs> uh, I can't say that on a or... Oh, there's fart jokes in that movie, too. In that, yeah. yeah. The Ozu movie with fart jokes. Um, you know what I'm going to recommend is a movie we covered on this incarnation of the podcast, which is General Della Rovere. It's a Roberto Rossellini film. It's about yes. a man who is posing, basically, as this you know general and is scamming people, and then he gets caught by you know the police at the time, which was uh, I, I think they're representing. Uh, I mean, they're they're German. Yeah, you're and, you're, and, you're, uh, uh, you're burying the lead of who the star is. 
Oh, and the the star of General Della Ro- Rovera is director Vittorio De Sica, and <clears throat> I mean, he, he does amazing as as this actor. But uh, I'm looking at he's been in all kinds of movies, so I guess yeah. I'm not that surprised, including uh, Blood for Dracula. What Paul Morrissey's movie? Huh? That's what it says. <laughs> Weird. A- anyways, uh, just just like all the Italian movies from this era that had to do with a war, I feel like it, it it has that gravitas. But you get to see his character actually. Uh, I mean, he he goes through a journey of like working for people that he doesn't want to work for, and then eventually ending up in prison and this like sad nobility thing i don't don't want to spoil the ending but like it as soon as we stopped or as soon as we podcast about it like i, I looked up and got the blu-ray of it mm. because it's, i mean yeah it's just a really good movie and i think uh it's mostly ignored yeah i know uh, you know i i really haven't heard people talk about it outside of you know yeah. spencer and i yeah, yeah it's kind and of maybe, a- yeah, we discussed it, but it's kind of an apology movie because Rossellini uh, aligned with the fascist government in certain ways, and uh, I-, I don't know how involved he was, but he was kind of really involved. He was best friends with Mussolini's son, and so there's like a lot of complicated stuff of like I- I'm not sure if he did for did, did to survive or he genuinely believed in fascism, but uh, it feels this movie feels like an apology of like looking back at. Uh, what he did during the war. I was like, okay, maybe, maybe that was fucked up. Maybe that was wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's, Rome Open City is from 1945, for God's sake. Yeah. I can... I think it was Rosalini. I could be totally off base. It might be some other uh, director, but I, there's an apocryphal story, possibly, about uh, A Day in the Country by Jean Renoir, uh, where Rosalini was a fascist and then he showed up on set and saw the way Jean Renoir uh, sort of operated his shoots uh, very democratically, and after that he became a socialist. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I, that's something someone told me once, and I, it was such a beautiful thought that I <laughs> held on to it, regardless of how far-fetched it sounds uh, when I speak uh-huh. it. <laughs> We're going to pretend it's true. Absolutely. It's true. Absolutely. Another reason to love Renoir. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's it. Um, I have no clue when this is coming out. Probably September, October. I'm possibly August. I I'm not really sure. But uh, Patrick, what do what do you have coming out, or podcast wise, or book wise, whatever it is you do? I uh, I have a podcast called Tracks of the Damned, where I do commentary tracks for horror films. That I don't know when the next one is gonna be, just because it's sort of on a little bit of a hiatus right now. The last one was on Jurassic Park. Um, the next one's going to be on Possessor by Brandon Cronenberg. I just don't know when. Um, and then I have a new podcast called Uptown Song Club, uh, oh. where I'm joined by guests and we just discuss songs in detail. And that hasn't been officially released yet, the first episode, but if you go to Twitter and go to Uptown Song Club, uh, then that will be where I post all that info when it does come to fruition. All right. Uh, 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 Dave, you? Um, I have just started a new production company called The Uncommon Thread, which will be producing uh, multiple storytelling mediums 
uh, live performance, dance, podcasts, uh, but in a storytelling sort of way, doing stuff uh, on social media as well, just finding every medium that exists in the world basically right now and telling the stories that don't get told. So mostly a focus on gender and racial neutral stories and hmm. approaches to classical material, modern material, whatever is going on. Um, yeah, so that's that's what's that's what's happening for me. Okay. Uh, I've oh, I recorded a grindbin episode um, on vir- a virtual assassin, aka Cyberjack. It's uh, Blade Runner, but Die Hard and Robocop, and it stars Michael Dudikoff. And uh, if you like shitty directive video '90s action, you'll love this movie. If you don't, don't don't bother. <laughs> It's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> and Brian James. Is that going to be the Criterion collection? It should be. But I, Brian James okay. is the villain. So it has some credit. All right. All right. I love Brian James. He's having the most fun. And Dudikoff is... he He's trying to be a badass hero. <laughs> uh, but... And... What else? Uh, oh, uh, I was featured on Grumpire on their action movie uh, thing they do every other month. I wrote about the Indian action movie Vikram, and hopefully I have another piece I've been working on uh, working on for them on a 40s musical on why this in my 40s musical is secretly a punk movie. And uh, hope uh, hopefully I can actually finish that soon, by the time this comes out, but I don't know if I'll be able to. And... Uh, I don't know, we, we have two other seasons. Uh, one on Kurosawa, one on uh, uh, Spike Lee. Spike Lee. Yeah, it took a second to remember that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, J-Dog, you? Please don't send me to outer space. My science fiction movie podcast will soon have new episodes coming out. I have three in the can already. And by the can, I mean the toilet. So uh, if anyone knows a good plumber. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, so... Besides that, uh, not really doing. I'm taking a break on the video game thing. I just got a new job, and I'm gonna get see how I feel after a week or two if I can muster the time and the effort. Because making, you know, recording yourself playing a video game is one thing, but turning that video into YouTube content or or something somebody might want to watch is a different thing. <laughs> At, uh, yeah, I'm. I don't know. Follow me on Twitter at JDT Games. Okay. And uh, as of this recording, uh, I just released an episode on Black Girl, the Simbin film. And after that, will be the the final Pasolini movie, because I, I know Joel doesn't enjoy them as much as I do. In it, uh, the last one, it will be the Gospel According to Saint Matthew, and. Uh, yeah, so that's as of recording of what will be coming out soon. And uh, Patrick and Dave, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, actually, uh, Patrick, you have to go soon, so I'll, I'll, I'll email you about next season. And Dave, stay on a little bit. I can tell you about next season. Word. And uh, yeah, so see you guys next time for whatever it is, because I kind of gave up on a normal schedule. Uh, <laughs> on the <this> season, <laughs> right? Uh, turn it off. I'll think about turning it off. I want to get some more evidence. 
The show can be found on Twitter at PianoPlayerPod. Our email is still HighLowPod at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, SarahKathleenRoberts.com, and thank you for listening.